डिड यू डू योर होमवर्क ओके गुड या या वो सब हो गया ओके परफेक्ट hi uh, today we're in conversation with a friend of mine from uni who's also a law student um ranjay and uh, we'll be talking a lot about a particular experience that not many have had the privilege i'd like to say privilege but like uh, many have had the opportunity to have and then we'll also talk a bit about um the whole sort of you know well not aura but the whole sort of uh, experience that someone who has an indian origin growing outside india has um w- what is what is the nri culture whether he's faced it um we'll talk a bit about that and then we'll go into a discussion about law and more specifically we'll sort of try and draw a contrast between the reality or, or realities of the legal practice in the uk as opposed to how it must be in um uh, singapore where he stays um and for me in india um right so well if i were to sort of ask you um and before i get to this i'd like to just like disclose to the people who are listening that you've done dun, dun, two dun. years of yeah you you've done two years of military service in singapore which i think yeah. is very fascinating and deserves to be talked about uh because it's it's a field that or military <laughs> service or or anything like you know anything related to the security of a nation is i think a an important conversation that a lot of people our age are not having you know um mm. so i'd just like to before i get into the whole uh, you know detailing of it in yeah. in a very brief sort of uh, way could you like explain to us what the whole process was like whether it was compulsory for you um you know when when did it take place you know just the you know the the paperwork if i may ask yeah sure of course yeah. some context mm-hmm. yeah so my parents moved uh, to singapore from india uh, maybe about 1996 or so i can't i can't be sure if that's the exact date right and uh, my dad as soon as he got here the first mm-hmm. thing that he that he received was an exemption letter because he was above a certain age he was like mm-hmm. a young man just gotten married but definitely above the age of conscription so okay. he got exempted so that 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 in itself shows you how intrinsic this this element of conscription is to singaporean life and culture like that's mm-hmm. everyone has to sort of uh encounter some form of its uh, bureaucracy at at some point in their lives if they wish to live in singapore whether it's getting an exemption or whether it's actually performing it so my dad got that exemption but as a second generation pr um as 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 the law goes i i had to serve it was compulsory for me and i sort of enlisted a month after i got my iv results and this was like 7th feb 2017 right and i i i did an extra i did an extra 2 months cuz i was a chubs boy <laughs> and i needed more time to sort of uh reach the level of the minimum level of fitness right um I was a drama theater kid my whole life so no exercise was just out, of, out of the window question, yeah completely yeah so I I understood and sort of first two months was just all physical training it really just felt like a like an extended PT lesson more than anything and mm-hmm. after that yeah the soldiering uh started and I did that for like 
yeah, like uh, for about a solid, I think, four months, basic military right. training. And then I got posted to a unit. Uh, and the unit I was posted to was, uh, actually, I don't know if I should be super specific, but I was in the infantry. And uh, yeah, I was yeah. put there because I was a PR. I wasn't a citizen. Mm-hmm. And so there was a security issue. I didn't have the clearance to be in it. Like I couldn't possibly be an intelligence officer at that point in time because right, I wasn't Singapore. a citizen of Singapore. Yeah. And that was so interesting because I had to take oaths. Like I was a permanent resident, yeah. Right. Sorry, yeah, that's what PR is, guys. Yes, permanent resident. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was so odd though, because I had to I had to do like all these oaths where I was like pledging my life to the country and I would, you know, mm-hmm. I had to I had to promise to give it up if, if the time came. And I wasn't a citizen. I, was, I still had an Indian passport and mm-hmm. technically on paper, my loyalty and my duty was to a different country. So that was like a whole other dilemma, but I kind of just didn't think much about it. I was like, Tika, it's just a formality. I'm mm-hmm. just getting through it. Um, but yeah, it's very, very pedestrian experience, honestly. Lots of Singaporeans who listen to your podcast, like, there'll be like at least 2 million people will identify with the experience I'm sharing right now. Right. It's probably right. slightly less than that, but yeah, roughly. But yeah, that's one of the benefits of it because you can strike up a conversation with any Singaporean who served in the military and instantly become friends with them, whether or not, mm-hmm. even if you just met them 10 minutes ago. Right. So that's, yeah, that's roughly the paperwork. Right. So since, since you spoke about, um, you know, the whole sort of process and you were still... <laughs> a permanent re- resident. You, of course, right now you're a citizen uh, of Singapore, yeah. Uh, yeah. but back then you weren't. Um, was apart from the general sort of things that you that w- were limited for you because you were not a citizen. Um, how does that play into uh, well military life? Let's say, all right, like the fact that uh, you are not like on paper at least a person who belongs to the state or like, you know, that the state is responsible for. uh, And yet you're sort of like volunteering to serve in the military for that country. Did that, like you said, you didn't think a lot about it, but like in retrospect, at least, how did that play out? I mean, in retrospect, I guess, um, the experience just confirmed what I'd always suspected all along, which was that although I have so much pure, you know, love for my Indian culture, my heritage, my roots. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I mentioned to you, uh, and a lot of my forefathers fought mm-hmm. in the, from, in, in the Indian military. Some, I have a grandfather who died in France in the right. World War, and so there's a rich military history there mm-hmm. from, in the Indian context. So although this was hard for me to admit, my military experience just confirmed for me that Singapore's always been the home I spent my life looking for, the home I was looking for in India, which right. never quite came to accommodated me. me. Right. Yeah, never quite came to me. My, I do have, like, in my entire family is there. Everyone I love is there. I, I get along with the locals. I understand the ins and outs of politics somewhat. I'm mm-hmm. quite in touch, uh, but it's well, more in touch than a lot of people I come across. Yeah, I get it. Like, that was yeah. about to be my next question in a way, because... Um, I've always wanted to understand that whole dichotomy that people must have if they've grown up outside of where their heritage belongs. Right? So, yeah. You know, I mean, um, is it, yeah. is it like present as a conscious thought or is it that, you know, like 
I've seen people who are probably more attached to Indian culture than a lot of Indians, I'd say, you know, uh, despite having been brought up outside. Um, so that's, that's, you know, maybe a subconscious yeah. dilemma that, that works somewhere that, uh, okay, fine. Oh, I mean, I, yeah. but like, that, that begs the question though, like they're seeking something that there's, as someone who's been in that position, I, I think subconsciously we're trying to fill a certain hole and I don't know what it is, but uh, like for everyone else, but for me, maybe it's because Singapore, being a Singaporean, you realize that there's no like binding, like identity that you have beyond something beyond like superficial stuff i'd say like for example singlish singaporean english Mm -hmm. it's a perfect meld of uh chinese dialects like hokkien and teochew and all this uh with tamil Mm -hmm. and uh uh english obviously and of course singapore's national language malay Mm -hmm. so that's very unique to singapore if you go one step to the left or right or up or down malaysia indonesia whatever this is not there and right. these are our neighboring countries and mm-hmm. people from these countries have frequently populated singapore in the past and still this is a very unique singaporean thing but beyond that i feel like it's very much a situation that perhaps the african american community in in well america experiences which is that of the hyphenated identity. Right. So I'm not just a Singaporean, I'm a Singaporean Indian. Right. And being just a Singaporean doesn't make you privy to a, a unique culture all that much. It's at least not one that's substantial enough to sort of populate your identity meaningfully. Whereas mm-hmm. the Indian aspect of it does most of the heavy lifting for me. And I think right. most of the people I've spoken to are in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we had a conversation about, you know, well, your two years in like doing military service where mm-hmm. you told me something that I found very interesting that, you know, um, your sort of whole upbringing has been, uh, if I may say, sort of, you know, it's been privileged. You've, you've sort of le- lived a very protected life um, and like, we're not protected. I mean, like what is protected, but like whatever you've lived, you've not seen like, well, hardship in, in, yeah. like, in the strict sense of the term, right? Whereas yeah. in the military, uh, what, what you said to me was an equalizing experience where you were sort of exposed to a lot of people who did not perhaps belong to the same background that you did, um, who, you know, were not, didn't have the same childhood that you did. Um, would you say that that's an experience that, well, obviously it is a very unique experience that you had, but my question would be that you know how how does it play out for the youth in general do you think that that is an experience which on some degree or the other everyone must have whether it's in the military or otherwise to expose yourself to people from various parts of your community to have an experience which is probably more grounding than than definitely would have been in your childhood Definitely. Look, like I, I, I went to the best schools ever, thanks to my parents. Like they always prioritize my education, and mm-hmm. I sort of paid attention in school. And I, so based on merit, I got into these schools. And my parents were more than willing to sort of pay the hefty fees that these schools demanded because mm-hmm. there was an investment in my future. So and so, blah blah blah. Good intentions. Okay. What was the outcome? I hung out with all the elites in Singapore. And what that did was it bred a very sinister underlying 
tinge of elitism like in my character which i was completely unaware of but the simplest manifestation of that is my propensity to judge people and value them based on accomplishments which okay. is at, at like in certain contexts that's how it works you're looking for a job you hire the most qualified person but mm. when you're as a human being when, when it really comes down to it if that's how you judge people there's something fundamentally wrong and i can say this because i think i've sort of emerged from that mm-hmm. solely because of my military experience because everyone in the military is treated the same you are i was subordinated to people who uh, led from from if i were to invoke that problematic uh, value judgment system now mm-hmm. people i was i was subordinated to people who had very insignificant lives hadn't done much and likely aren't doing anything now and will never right. amount to anything right but i respected them because when it came down to it they protected their men they looked out for everyone they made sure no one was um sort of and like military training is very dangerous and they like these people were very very careful about their jobs very meticulous and they were helpful people if you needed help they would they wouldn't hesitate you know they would, they 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 never prioritized themselves and in right. some ways maybe that's why they ended up where they did which is you know perhaps not taking charge of one's life might amount to a scenario where you're not in a position that you'd like to be in but a th- a, a, a a positive externality of that is that the people around you are well taken care of so there's pros and cons but in the mm-hmm. military context i appreciated them for who they were not what they did and i i only got there because of my experience in the military like i i i was probably the most educated person in my section which is like maybe seven or eight people mm-hmm. uh and there were maybe two or three other people like me in my platoon uh and what would happen is at the end of the day the five or six of us maybe or whatever the number was we would meet every night and talk about our futures and work and all that but that was one hour of the day so in terms of was it important yes but in terms of how much of your life these kinds of things should populate one hour a day is more than enough i think the rest of the time i i spent talking to everyone else and really building my character not just my cv right. which is what i was doing with these people mm-hmm. right yeah. um so uh, w- what would like a typical day look like um you know like run us through the time that you'd get up the things that you'd sort of have to do if you're allowed to say of course um yeah i'll try <laughs> i'll keep it big <laughs> i'll keep it big but uh specific enough to make sense yeah we'd okay. wake up at like 5 or 5:30 and mm-hmm. uh we'd sort of uh fall in which is what we call assembling i guess mm-hmm. we'd assemble we'd fall in uh within 10 minutes of that we'd march off to breakfast so in the military all movement has to be in the form of marching you don't just stroll to the canteen you wait for the entire platoon to assemble and you march off together and if we were late for the predetermined fallen time uh we would start the morning with push-ups right <laughs> it was fantastic i tell you uh and then we go for breakfast sweaty and mm. we if there was already a company or a a different platoon using the canteen we'd wait outside uh for our turn when it, when it, when when it, when it was vacated we go in we'd have a simple meal of fruits or oats or something and then the the, the day would be, uh would would begin 
and what that really comprised of was like mainly physical training mm-hmm. uh, in the afternoons, which was really annoying because that's when it's the hottest in Singapore. And okay. then towards the evening, we'd start to work more on our soldier fundamentals, put on the our body armor, draw our rifles from the armory and start practicing mm-hmm. our infantry drills. You know, how do, how, how do you attack a machine gun outposts as a platoon uh, and not get decimated? How do you um, sort of destroy obstacles and stage, uh, stage a, a breach or whatever it's called, like whereby okay. the entire platoon sort of ambushes enemies by destroying mm-hmm. the fortifications, stuff like that. Um, and then we'd end the day with, here's the thing, like, I'm going to say, I'm going to use the word punishments, but (laughs) so a very convenient way of training in the military is finding faults and then issuing Mm. physical punishments, uh, which is, I don't mean caning. I mean like push-ups, running, Mm -hmm. sit-ups, all this. And so we spent most of our day getting punished, but that's not because our leaders were ruthless uh, sadists. It's because okay. that's one. one that they, they'll phrase it as punishments, as a form of uh, regimentation, so that right. you so know. It's, a, it's who's an effective in... method of regimentation in the military. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But then the goal, the end goal, is to make sure you're fit. That's right. the end goal. They want you to do push-ups, but they know that if they just, you know, just uh, tell you that, yeah, 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 it'll be like, what's the point? I've done my push-ups. No, no, no. They have to sort of contextualize it in this way, mm-hmm. so that you feel like you have no choice. Uh, not that you have anyway, but a lot of people have authority problems. So this mm-hmm. is get through to these kinds of people right. to make it seem like you have no choice and, you know, uh, to put you in your place, which, which is integral to maintaining an effective chain of command. Mm-hmm. So that was mo- what and most when of would the day, day end for you? Like, um, so we'd have dinner at about 6.30 PM or so. And then we'd continue with some more activities until about 9.30 or 10, mm-hmm. uh, and that's, that's when the day would end and that's when we'd all go back to our bunks and sort of uh, the food in the military is really bad. So we all brought instant noodles okay. uh, and we used to sort of sit around and uh, make our instant noodles, uh, talk to people from all walks of life about their experiences. And I really learned so much more about Singapore. Like I had, I had this perception that Singapore was like this spanking, like, cool kids down where everything was mm. new and gla- made of glass right. and through the through my conversations with these people I I learned a lot about the underbelly of the country and that was really uh, insightful so right. that's besides the point yeah mm-hmm. okay now I'm gonna ask you a difficult question so um, no well not not a difficult question but something that I've been meaning to ask you um, sure so something that has been asked as a question to a lot of countries which do follow the method of conscription and not just to those countries, but countries which give their military a lot of importance, including India, yeah. uh, where yeah. conscription isn't a thing, but you know, the military is still highly sought after and valued. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, one of the questions being asked is the whole sort of routine or the whole sort of syllabus, if I were to put it for volunteering or serving in the military, for let's say an 18 or 19 year old who is still fairly young, you know, um, should be, well, a lot of critiques say that it should be more, it should be based more on teaching the values of maintaining discipline, um, teaching the values of 
teamwork on on the idea of being all right with sacrificing you know a lot of security personal physical security on behalf of um, other members of the military that you might have to save if the time comes and should be less focused on if i were to put it vaguely the glorification of violence which we all know is a side effect yeah, of yeah. war all right mm-hmm. um so do you think that countries well i mean of course particular to singapore um or any country which follows conscription should bear that in mind when they are teaching a cohort of young people who are still very impressionable um well i mean do you think that that's something that the military should bear in mind or a country should bear in mind when when imparting education on military service to an entire section of their demographic um yeah, yeah. well that that could i be. mean of course yeah uh, here's the thing though like that that I, i'm not i was about to say indoctrination <laughs> uh, <laughs> or or no, will... so on the converse would you rather say that it is inevitable when you're serving in the military you will be exposed to violence you will be exposed to the, the to the consequences of serving in the military which is the consequences of war inadvertently so you will be exposed to some sort of uh, violence so, now whether yeah. it's glorified or not is up to whoever's teaching you that's, would you yeah yeah that's ex- that's exactly what i'd say actually i was going to say that most of our education actually revolves around the horrors of warfare mm-hmm. and the horrors of being invaded right and how unideal it would be to be subjugated by another country and what it would be like to live mm-hmm. as a second class citizen in your own country right uh now that it's been occupied by someone else so a lot of our a lot of that a lot of the narrative revolves around look we don't want to go to war and that's why we have a deterrent force so that people don't right. feel the feel like they can walk all over us so that's the mm-hmm. singaporean perspective on things it's not so much to be an a force that that sort of keeps other powers in check mm-hmm. it's more to just make it's just a signal to the world that look singapore's a valuable piece of land and it's a great trading hub mm-hmm. but you like we will put up a fight you will win but we will put up a fight that will cost the country all of the plus points for which you have invaded us like it's a very right. interesting take on it so honestly there is no glorification of violence every time we did our infantry drills we'd get stopped whenever we whenever we made a mistake like mm. are you serious this is really how you want to approach this you know in a real situation situation you'd be dead is that what you want you know how much right. a bullet costs a bullet costs less than 50 cents is that's how much your life is worth 50 cents do you agree with that no so then make sure you take cover properly don't be exposed so a yeah. lot of the rhetoric was all about like look this is a nightmare situation and the best thing you can do is what we're teaching you to stay alive it's not to, we're not taught about we're not taught to demonize enemies obviously mm. at to certain extent you have to make sure that you properly antagonize nice them otherwise what are you doing yeah. on the back but i'll tell you why i'm asking this question because yeah, yeah. I, for sure india has been one of the victims of you know sort of uh, well i'll talk about the police force um yeah. there's been a lot of glorification of the fact that the police can take extra legal measures if they so wish um to sort of reach an outcome of an investigation which could involve being violent with a suspect which could involve being taking extra liberties uh, under custody um and things of the like which has also been glorified in the media you know in in films and 
stuff of the like, you know. And America's yeah. been a victim of that as well, where they've glorified their military and, you know, the wars that they've fought and they've properly, well, since you mentioned antagonizing the enemy, they've made proper demons out of their enemies as well. So is that is yeah. that something that, you know, well, I'm not talking about right or wrong, but is that something that at least people should bear in mind when, when you know, I, I just think that education is something that one must always strategize. You know, if, if the impact yeah, yeah. of what I teach to a 19-year-old now is going to be, is going to turn the wrong way five years down the line and he'll sort of start glorifying gun violence, let's say, then how will that yeah. be if I'm imparting something like that to an entire society? So Of course, you need to be conscious of, of, of what your instructors are saying. You need to mm-hmm. develop a curriculum that, that, derives the most utility without leaving any, uh, uh, without, without sort of, how would one put this? Uh, you derive the most utility without condemning someone to sort of uh, radicalization at some point later down the line. Right. By, and you know, there's, usually when that happens, it's because uh, the person deriving, deriving the utility is like, that's not my problem. So the thing is, you need to make it your problem. You need to be aware of how you yourself have much to lose if the people under your charge get radicalized. So that's, right. that's but that's like a different topic. I'd say like mm-hmm. um, the countries you mentioned, the reason I'd, maybe the glorifying their military and glorifying conflict in general to the extent that they are is because there's a very specific utility and that is uniting the country. Now, Singapore has a population of like what 5.8 or something 5.8 mm-hmm. million mm-hmm. it's it's relatively easy like it's relatively easy to get people together and to get them to rally behind something but in a country right. like India that that itself Isn't could so be easy, split yeah. into mm-hmm. yeah it, it itself could be split into like 10 15 different countries honestly yeah, of course. right yeah. minimum two you could yeah, make South India sure. one country and North India one country right and people would be very happy with that like over mm-hmm. they would not be that that would not be too controversial for people on the ground. Debatable, I mean. But no, no, no. So like, so like, people with good sense would be like, "Oh my God, what are you doing?" But like, culturally, <laughs> right, right. It would like, make sense. They wouldn't to, suffer. Yeah, yeah. yeah they true. wouldn't suffer. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they, nothing would be lost. Uh, in terms, like, let's say, like you wouldn't lose Punjabi shadi culture if North right, India right, became right. a separate country. I, I get like, it. Yeah. The small things, day-to-day mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. The thing is the reason they're doing so much of that is probably to unite a country that's as prone to like division as India is. Mm. And that's a questionable tactic, but yeah, I, I, I I don't support it at all. I think that before anything, it just faces a lot of human rights issues. Um, And just because in, again, in my opinion, when, it comes back to the same point, which is that we are such an impressionable country. This is very particular to India, which is, you know, a whole demographic of which is so young, you know, like the majority uh, population of our country is under the age of 35, which means that they're extremely impressionable. On top of that, they have only recently been exposed to multimedia, you know, like, of course, films were have been there for decades. Uh, so have phones and whatnot. But the distribution of said medium uh, has has happened sort of expansively only over the past decade or so. You know, so it it just leads to a very um, radical input. If you 
if one if let's say a, a villager you know like uh, who doesn't really have a lot of exposure to uh, worldly things sees a movie with his favorite movie star enacting something which might be problematic he might think that that is all right you know it, it, uh, yeah. according to his sense of justice or whatever but again that's a different topic um no but rabat rabat yeah. it's that's i'd like to pick up on that actually briefly because it's i realized it's so easy to get radicalized from a distance when you're being fed this information through multimedia Absolutely. it's easy to demonize people it's easy to think that Extremely. violence is the only way mm-hmm. in fact conscription is that leveler where you actually get thrown into the middle of it and now and then you and then the question is posed before you like is this the best way to do it and you realize no there's so much right. to lose here on a personal yeah. level as well and that's why i think in a country like singapore we don't spend much time talking about i don't know like the military industrial complex as 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 americans do we don't spend as much time talking about patriotism as perhaps indian indians do because mm-hmm. it's we have that uh, equalizing leveling force in our lives known as conscription that makes right. us aware of the realities of warfare mm-hmm. and also instills a sense of duty a, a very basic sense of duty towards the country so it's okay. a very it's a it's an i feel like it's an optimal solution in fact i learned so many great things from my time in the military which one of which i'd love to touch on uh, right right point. absolutely please do i'll ask you about that but before sure. i do um one thing that i found very interesting which i'd like to ask you is since you said that you know uh, you were acquainted with a lot of people who have had troubled childhoods at the lack of a better phase let's say um um who faced legal problems who have you know um just had a very different uh, childhood which was filled with a lot of crisis and what not i'd like to ask you because because the whole sort of concept of conscription comes under the radar so often by um human rights agencies and what not um i somehow feel that you know there there is an optimistic spin to this given on given what you've said which is that i at least think that revision or or revisionary practices or rehabilitation practices of uh, for young people or young delinquents if i'm being precise is something is a practice which all governments must employ you know yeah. uh, so do you think that this is somehow you know doing that in a way where you not only you know get get a, like there, there is an exposure to sort of societies um like lowest denominators or if i may call them that or whatever uh, but yeah. also they are getting the experience of experience, of of having let's say of of writing a wrong but like that's that's being too vague and cliched but of you know just no, but i see what you i see what you mean yeah. i see what you mean right and the an- the short answer to that is yes mm-hmm. um very superficially being in the army instills discipline just by sheer like just by 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 sheer function of being in an army camp 5 days in a week and being told what to do and being given very strict deadlines to follow mm-hmm. failing which you're punished and was still uh this doctrine of collective punishment which mm-hmm. puts creates this peer pressure to not make a mistake because if you okay. make a mistake people suffer so it's a very it's in that sense it's that's all there mm-hmm. superficially everything you, every positive thing you could say about the army that that's there okay mm-hmm. so every stereotypically good benefit to derive whatever it's all there specifically uh the singaporean army has this rehab program where uh people who get uh, people 
who are conscripted uh, at a time where they are addicted to drugs, mm-hmm. they're, they're given an option whereby they say, uh, whereby it's like, all right, if you're an addict, just tell us. Nothing will happen to you. No punishment whatsoever. You will just have to be subject to urine tests. Obviously, right. you have to stay sober while, while you're with us. Mm-hmm. And to make sure that you're sober on the weekends as well when you go home. You're given a weekly urine test. Mm-hmm. And even if you fail, you're not, you're not, it's, it's not as severe as being caught in the right. civilian world. Right, what right, they right. do is they actually send you for counseling and all this. And they genuinely try to rehabilitate you for the Which two years you're wonderful. there. Which is wonderful. And it's all free, obviously. Right? It's all free. It's, it's government amazing. provided. You're getting paid to be a soldier. Mm-hmm. You're kept off the streets five days a week. Mm-hmm. And you have programs like this that try to actively fix what might be wrong with you. Right? Right. They treat it like an illness rather than a crime. Mm. And that it's, it, it's interesting that the military is the one place that Singapore adopts this manifestation of the solution on, uh, uh, for drugs, for drug mm-hmm. addiction. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, the, it's, it's very interesting to me, but it is what it is. So undoubtedly so. I mean, if you ask someone other than me, I, I'd say you'd get a far more cynical perspective. But because of the overwhelmingly positive experience I've had, because of a friend of mine who came in as a drug addict and left clean, I mm. have to say that it, it works. It works. You can't argue with the results. They Absolutely. are what they are. Wonderful. Right. Um, would you maybe want to share an anecdote or like a story uh, like related to the time that you were in the military? Something that was probably memorable, something that you still remember, you know? <laughs> I'd love to, yeah. This, I'll never forget what I'm about to share. Right. Um, okay. Please do. <laughs> already so pumped the, just, uh, okay calm, calm down okay. curb, your, curb your enthusiasm <laughs> <laughs> listeners this is going to be shit please do uh, <laughs> alright I'll get into it um, so we were in a neighboring country on an overseas uh, military exercise mm-hmm. and what we were doing is we were learning how to fight as an infantry force uh, in mountain ranges along okay. ridge lines so it's like the path that's formed but when uh, the peaks of several mountains are aligned. So it's a very specific type of terrain. And uh, for whatever, whatever reason, we picked a certain country to go and train uh, our skills for this context because Singapore has no mountains. Mm-hmm. So we went there. Um, we were inserted via helicopter into a jungle and we were told to navigate for about three days. And we had to clear certain checkpoints and it was supposed to be ideally non-stop because the deadline given was very tight. We slept for maybe three or four hours a night and that's considered the ideal amount of rest while you're, the, the word we use is outfield, which means mm-hmm. you're out of base, you're in, on a mission, you're in, okay. in, on a mission exercise or something. So four hours is ideal. We did that every night, uh, for two nights, and we had to navigate for the three days. We had about 40 kilograms of gear uh, on our backs we were climbing near vertical mountains and uh, we had about seven liters of water because i mean we had we had chlorine pills to clean Mm -hmm. up river water with Mm -hmm. which we could then drink but we didn't want to stop we had to keep it going so on the third the third day um it was like we were we had to just make it to the last checkpoint Mm -hmm. and everyone had run out of water every single person because 
seven liters just isn't enough for how good the task right. is. Yeah. It's horrible. It's horribly like insufficient. Uh, but the more water you carry, the heavier your bag is. So there's a middle. There's a middle ground. So the guy in front of me, someone under my charge, uh, he told me, uh, Rananjay, I I can't see. He he kept walking, but he said I cannot see anything right now. And I said, yeah. look, we have to keep going. We have no choice. This is the mission. Let's go. And in hindsight, might I probably should have been more empathetic mm-hmm. given what transpired next. But I made that mistake, and I'll own it. Um, he collapsed. Okay, oh and. <laughs> He collapsed. He started foaming at the mouth. His eyes were rolled back, oh and so God. at this point, we were like, "Look, this is—we have been conscripted in peacetime. Life mm-hmm. and death has always been a concept to us, just as it is to civilians." Right. But right there, I was like, "This guy could jolly well die," right. and it stunned me, and it stunned everyone else around me who had gathered, which is basically the rest of the platoon. I tried to establish communications with my officer to get the company's company to stop moving so we could tend to this guy. And the medics came and literally everyone just sort of knelt down next to him and they were like, we have no idea what to do right now. The medics who had at that point oh trained for about a year. They'd, they'd been trained for one year. Right. We had been trained in basic first aid and like CPR and all this. Mm-hmm. We all just sat around. We sort of took out his helmet and we took off his body armor to let him breathe. Mm-hmm. And we were just like, uh, like inaction was the name of the game, right. essentially. Yeah. Right. And it's at that moment that I realized how important it is to, you know, when it, whatever endeavor you pick, whatever context it is, d- d- don't focus on being the packaging. Try to be the product. Because what yeah. what happened to us at that point was we spent a year. Uh, sort of just going through training, passing tests, getting the minimum score required, not really committing to anything, not thinking deeply about anything, not mm-hmm. putting any substantial effort, not deriving any substantial utility or benefit. It was just, we had a checklist. I need to do this, do this, do this, do this. Right. And on 6th, 2019, I will graduate and I'll be a civilian again. Mm-hmm. So what happened was in the army, we did this. And then before us was a very real and dangerous outcome of our actions. Mm-hmm. We had focused so much on the packaging mm-hmm. instead of focusing on actually being something of substance that right. we ended up being completely useless when the time came. And that was such a big wake up call. And I mean, I, I live by that mantra like every day now, like be the product, not the pack- packaging, be right. the product, not the packaging. Because I, mean, I think I mentioned this to you the other day, like the, a popular term that's thrown around on campus is CV mercenary. Oh my and God. it's like, right? It's people yeah. who are like, just, they just go around and do things for the CV. Yeah, they yeah, attend yeah. seminars. They go for open days. Tell all me they about this. Yeah. They just shoot the shit. They just shoot yeah, the shit. Yeah, yeah, they go yeah. to these spaces. Nothing's being learned. Nothing, uh-huh. No value is being added. Nothing. It's just that I they get to question. say. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's yeah. a questionable system. Yeah. All they get to say is like, i But I've no, wait. This. Cliffhanger. What happened? Oh, right. My bad. Oh, right. Yeah. So... Uh, the person who was widely regarded until that point as the most selfish guy in the platoon because uh-huh. he never helped anyone out. He kept to himself. He kind of, uh, he was rude to everyone. He was low-key, mm. quite racist towards the Indians. Mm. You know, just all around. Bad guy. Bad guy. Right. He came and he had learned acupressure before this whole thing. 
and what he okay. did was he 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 took his knuckle and he put overwhelming force um on the guy's lip above his two front teeth so you uh-huh. can see what I, where i'm pointing right now but for right. the listeners it's like the area just below the nose and right. uh, above your two front teeth uh-huh. if you put overwhelming pressure there it causes enough pain to wake people up from most stuff so what happened was this guy was choking on his own tongue and he was sort of it was we, now we know what happened but at the time we were like why is he not clueless yeah, yeah yeah so this guy just threw his rifle down took his knuckle and boom woke him up and i mean we were just like three medics around us and none of them could do anything and this random guy who treated us like crap for about a year until that point he just he literally saved a life my goodness and, oh my god right right and that just taught me like you can be as you can have as many good intentions in, intentions as you want to yeah ultimately it's action i mean this is very like intuitive stuff everyone knows this but but just like experience, yeah it was yeah, a living really, like yeah it really put it like it grilled you into it right i mean i can imagine exactly. just hearing it is just really wow okay <laughs> so right. kids stay be the product not the packaging <laughs> right yes what's to live by should be a t-shirt also <laughs> let's make it <laughs> let's just yeah let's but uh, right um if i can sort of move to another area now um <laughs> moving swiftly along <laughs> yes <laughs> uh i just couldn't find a segue so i'm just like of course yeah. <laughs> right. but uh, so okay law is something that you're uh, passionate about it's it's what you're studying right now um it's the field that you want to take up in the future but if i may ask you um what's this well i don't want to be so you know vague about it and ask you what's the scene like but like <laughs> what is the scene like you know like um, yeah, fair enough. What, how how do you sort of because i have a very like a very well founded you know after a lot of thought i've reached this conclusion okay fine this is how i see legal practice in the uk as opposed to how it is in india these are the pros and cons and i've wow. sort of weighed them against each other of course it's a it's a very juvenile uh, thought i just a first year student well not first year anymore but like whatever um and i sort of made that conclusion have you done that yet do you know or do you want to do that is that do you like being in the gray area or do you know where the pitfalls are in each area um what's that whole thing like i mean i i'd say i know where the pitfalls can be in the singaporean context i'm still mm. sort of learning about the uk um i know the dif- the the broad differences i i i would hesitate to say that i've done anything as uh sort of comprehensive as you might have done Mm. uh i'm sort of kind of just going with the flow and seeing where i get end up getting a tc that's so untrue though but okay we'll take it <laughs> listeners i'm free and easy and i don't do anything productive let's <laughs> let's stick to that let's stick to that <laughs> no no okay wait in case any future employees are listening i work hard this is right. just a, a no no but you do charming. i don't know why you're trying to act so oh my god i'm just going with the flow you are one of the most meticulous <laughs> like you know I don't know like yeah yeah no 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 I see what you mean but yeah basically like I I haven't spent too much time thinking about mm. the pros and cons of each place I spent time uh getting to know each place in mm. its entirety where it's possible but I'm not, I'm trying not to compare too much at this stage so right. I've done what tier of analysis haven't got haven't quite got into a comprehensive comparison mm. but I mean superficially speaking 
um, something to note is that the profession is not split in Singapore. So everyone is both a barrister of sorts yes. and a solicitor. And that's one of the most notable differences. And I think that has a pretty profound effect on the way you learn. Uh, well, okay, maybe not the way you learn the law, but the way, but, but, what, but what's perceived as, hmm, how, how would one put this? I think it has a pr- profound effect on what's perceived as desirable traits that one ought to possess if they wish, wish to be a successful okay. lawyer. Okay. So for example, in the UK, um, I'm an aspiring solicitor. So while it's expected that I'm somewhat eloquent, uh, mm-hmm. this podcast will undo all of uh, all of that. Right. Uh, while it's not expected, <laughs> I have to be somewhat eloquent. No, it doesn't have to be quite at the level that a barrister must be. I just have to be able to connect with people and express ideas clearly, sort of be semi-charming and sort of sensitive to my client's needs. Um, the bare minimum. To be able to put them at ease. Bare minimum, right? Just to, mm-hmm. just to, like something that a banker as well is probably likely to possess. Or that anyone kind who of has an experience dealing with clients, um, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. That's true, that's true. Right. That's a fair caveat, yeah. I guess it's because I'm in this banking and law space, so I just, I don't think about right. anything beyond it. But yeah. you're right. Anyone who has a client-facing profession, mm-hmm. this becomes uh, a minimal requirement. But in Singapore, like I, I did an internship at uh, this firm, uh, widely considered to be one of the best. Um, um, I say this just to lend credibility to the advice that an employee gave me. Um, I, was, uh, I was at lunch with my internship mentor. He's a partner at this firm. He teaches advocacy in, in, the, in the bar course that one must clear uh, to be a lawyer, to be a qualified lawyer in Singapore. And mm-hmm. so I asked him, what's, what's your tip uh, what, what, to being as articulate as you are? How do I sound like I know what I'm doing? And he literally looked at me and he said, speak slower. And I was like, what? Yeah, just speak slower. Most people tend to, uh, even if they're not nervous, mm-hmm. when they have a lot to say, the pace at which they speak picks up. And sometimes your mind can't. Your, your rather your your mouth can't keep keep up with your mind and you become less articulate right exactly yeah so mm-hmm. what fascinated me about that was how technical the approach is to advocacy in singapore mm-hmm. it's it's so i should have seen this coming because everything is so technical in singapore mm-hmm. in terms of education but i uh, i never thought it would extend to something as open ended as eloquence and you know expression and stuff like that right. but it is and that's just something that I don't see in the UK. And mm. that's not a knock on the UK. Like I said, it's a completely different context mm-hmm. uh, if you wish to be a solicitor. But it's an interesting uh, little difference. And I'm, I'm trying to keep a foot in the Singaporean door as well so that I can pick up some of this technical expertise and transpose it to the UK context and mm-hmm. try and be more articulate when I do negotiations or whatever. There's undoubtedly a value in speaking slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people tend to come off as more charismatic, uh, uh, worthy of respect and in charge when they do that. Um, I don't know if I want to be all of those things necessarily, but when the time comes, at least I know what to do. Right. That's the super, superficial level, like, you know, it's more technical in Singapore, I'd say. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question. All right. Okay. Um, so this is a question which is very like it, I ask this to every guest. 
um if you were sort of asked for advice from someone who has been in a similar situation as you well we spoke about three different things but i think what i'd like to ask you about um would be something which is a merge um which would be that if someone is in a situation like you where they're not very sure they they have a certain idea as to you know what they want to do but they're not very sure i mean you, you know you were a theater kid growing up now you're doing law um right yeah. so um like you know and they just don't know where to begin or perhaps they belong to a country which has like for instance me i belong to a country which has very progressive laws like the laws of india are far more progressive than a lot of western countries than a lot of the laws of uk are like for instance I'm the sure. law of consent in india is far more progressive than the law of consent in the uk so um but the enactment of it or the enforcement of it or the interpretation of it is far less like is far less progressive um if one finds oneself in a situation with faced with all these dilemmas where you know i'm getting a few resources here but i don't really know i'm i'm seeing a lot of that there but i don't really know about that as well um what should one do because i think you've sort of navigated that at least till now quite well so uh is there anything that you might have done which you found particularly useful is there anything that you might recommend to someone if they were to ask you something that you know um you would think would really help them what would what would your take on that be oh man that's I mean the first thing you need to really do is be honest with yourself and when you when you're trying to weigh all these different options and make a decision you have to you just have to make sure that you don't lie to yourself and you don't pretend to know the answer you have to just admit that you don't know that's genuinely the most important thing most people get stuck at this first step they they rely on their perceptions to make decisions and that's why they end up in places where they may not be happy because I mean your perception doesn't always align with reality that's the age right. of dilemma right and so the first thing you need to do is admit that you have no idea and then the second thing you have to do is uh, embark on a process that gives you an inkling of an idea and so mm. yeah, the answer is explore so i i had i genuinely had no idea if i wanted to be a lawyer even after the army like i wasn't sure i told myself i'm going to be a lawyer i was i wasn't sure like if i knew what i was talking about so i did internships i put myself out there and for and just just to clarify for anyone who's listening who thinks that uh the only way to get internships before law school are through family connections that's entirely not true all my internships were through unsolicited unsolicited applications i did not know anyone from beforehand and all you have to do is just be brave man just go to go to the, go to the courts that's what i did go to the courts listen to hearings I find a lawyer right that's the best yeah. way to learn you what I mean, the what the job is so you yeah you just you need to be there like exactly. i completely agree 100% go to the courts find the lawyer that you think uh find something that piques your curiosity that something that genuinely makes you go oh wait why is it like that and then speak to the lawyer and mm-hmm. ask him why he presented a certain argument or why his mm-hmm. interpretation differs in a certain way whatever and start that conversation it make it approach approach it as an exchange of value don't just mm-hmm. go there asking for an internship don't don't just mm-hmm. think about what value you get try and think about what value you can add and i mean and if i might just interrupt there for sure. for a second sure. uh, because i think what you just said is very interesting because i always like i i am a firm believer of this and based on obviously like i've 
since I've sort of grown up in an environment where I had lawyers around me all the time, mm-hmm. I genuinely believe this, that when you start learning the discipline, it is very specific to law, but I don't know, it might, might hold true for other professions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start learning or when, when you're in your first year and whatnot, you really don't acquire a lot of skill sets in order for you to be able to add value to your, to where you're interning, you know, like you really yeah, yeah. can't contribute that much. So what one should rather focus on is sort of getting attracted to the entire environment around you, which is why I really put a lot of emphasis on going to court, try and try and start, like try and expose yourself to that environment and, you know, just get, soak in the aura of it and like really start to like it because like the way internships are designed by firms over here in India is, you know, they'll, they'll get you sort of attracted to the whole thing. They'll, they'll yeah. be like, at the end of your internship, you'll be like, oh my God, wow. You know, yeah. I think having that experience, at least having one of those experiences is very important. Otherwise, you'll have the converse of that where you'll just, you'll not understand what's going on. You'll just be very bored because sure. again, you're focusing more on the packaging, right? Yeah, So sure. Um, right, yes. but That's true, yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta love what it is you want to end up doing and if you don't know whether you love it or not throw yourself into the middle of it and the thing is like the what what we talked about like the exchange of value bit adding value a lot of people jump straight to like well i don't know how to write a legal document what value can i add but listen that's a hard skill and hard skills proficiency in hard skills are ultimately a an extension of your soft skills so the reason you may be good at maybe uh, drafting a legal document is because you're you have the soft skill of being meticulous you have mm-hmm. that attention to detail right and you have you may have discipline as well so you pr- you're able to maintain that meticulousness throughout the drafting process it's not that some parts of your document are better than the rest so these forget the hard skill you don't have the hard skills that's not the big issue right now the big issue is do you even have the soft skills are you meticulous are you disciplined and if you if you if you aren't able to see, if you, if you find it hard to manifest these soft skills when you're doing work related to the profession, that may be the biggest red flag that you don't actually have a, a deep-seated passion or, or an attraction, as you said, towards right. that field. So until that, like you said, you're 100% on point. Until that attraction comes into play, you may not have the soft skills or your soft skills may not be working to the optimal capacity. And then you won't acquire the hard skills and it's a vicious cycle. So Mm. try and really be honest with yourself, learn about the world around you and then make decisions. Throw yourself into the middle of everything. Get get swept off your feet by an internship experience. Definitely. But then also keep an open mind because... There is like, this is the biggest thing with imposter syndrome. Like, yeah, we want firms so badly. We want TCs so badly, but listen, they also need lawyers. They also want good people. So to an extent, they will sell the firm to you as well. So Mm -hmm. it's not just, it is an exchange of value at the core. It's not just us begging for jobs. You know, they they do want good people. So we really have to maintain a level head and, you know, try not to get wrapped up in your insecurities. Try not to uh, be complacent because of your background or what you think is an in-depth perception of the world around you. Just go into the clean slate and question everything and you can't go wrong. Right. Wonderful. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you for agreeing <laughs> to do this. Um, couldn't Sorry, be more no. grateful that you said yes. And uh, yeah, 
uh, I think I think I really liked the, our whole discussion about whatever we just spoke about. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> All that verbal area was amazing. Thank you.